Welcome to Mates in Courage, brought to you by Good News Unlimited. Be part of a conversation between Graham Hood, champion fisherman, airline pilot and school dropout, and Ali Gonzalez, wannabe fisherman and holder of more useless degrees than you can poke a stick at. What could these two possibly have in common? The fact that neither of them have anything to hide. That's what. Mates in Courage. Take a listen. So, Graeme, what's been on your mind? I think that last conversation we had was pretty powerful. It was for me. We were both... It was for me too. We both had to take our glasses off and have a bit of a wipe. You know, we were talking about our dads and all that sort of stuff, and um, and then we ended up talking about fatherhood. Mm. I think we need to talk a lot about fatherhood. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I think we do, because I think at the end of the day, most of us as men will probably be fathers mm-hmm. and we haven't got a clue i mean when I, I was 21 when my daughter renee was born and i didn't have a clue you know and, and on her uh, 21st birthday I, I made up a little photo album with a story relating to each mm-hmm. photo and mm-hmm. she and i sat on the couch next to each other and we went through this this montage and um and then I looked at her and I said, I want to put all this into perspective. I want you to realise that I was only your age now when you mm-hmm. were born. And she just looked at me and her eyes nearly fell out of her head. Mm. And I said, so what does that make you feel? And she said, I'm just imagining me having a child now. I wouldn't know where to start. And I said, that's exactly right. That's how, that's how I felt. And I still do. I mm. still don't know how to be a good You know, I, uh, 12 years ago when we met, I didn't have a clue. Uh, you know, I was a grown man there, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, 40 years old or something. You know, growing up and in my early manhood, I didn't have any idea of the impact that my father had had on my life. And I think that that's most of us. You know, we think we are who we are because we decide how we're going to be and we mm-hmm. make the choices in life and it's who we are. Yep. And it's it's only in the last few years that I've I've come to understand what a huge influence my father uh, has had in shaping uh, all of my life, not just, you know, the, the good bits uh, that I am, but the bits that I, I'm not so happy about as well. You know, related to that, there's something also uh, that uh, my son Benjamin said to me, and and this, this happened a few years ago when he was in the middle of his teenage years, and uh, you know how teenage boys can get. Yeah. He was feeling rather upset with me and with uh, Anna, my wife. Mm. Uh, with me, he had good reason. We might talk about that another time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he said angrily to us both, he said, I owe nothing to you. Now, in fact, he said it to me. He was mm-hmm. referring to his mother and I, but, but he said to me, I owe nothing to you. I have no DNA from you. I am who I choose to be, you know. And I said, what, you had an immaculate conception or something? Yeah. And, uh, and he said, yeah, well, if that's what it takes, you know, I've, you know, I've, got, I've got nothing from you. I'm not like you in any way. Mm. And I think he, now that he's uh, going to be coming into his early 20s, uh, he's mellowed a bit and, and, you know, he's sort of starting. St- he's smarter than me, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. But he's starting to realise that, yeah, he's a bit like uh, his, uh, his dad. That's all part. Of, that's all part of the growth cycle, I guess. When you go, when we talked about going from boyhood psychology to manhood psychology, all that demonstrates is that there's an awkward disjointing mm. in the process from 
from Ben going from boyhood to manhood. There's a lot of confusion in that stage. You know, I, I go back to being a boy and, and having a, a girl, Angela, who lived next door when I was a when I was prepubescent. And I looked at Angela and it was like, oh, yuck, there's a girl. Oh, we've all got our Angelas, I guess. Yeah, and I, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember looking at her and think, "Oh, yuck! There's a there's a girl. Girls are yuck, you know." And she was probably looking at me, thinking, "Oh, boys are yuck. Girl germs." Yeah, girl germs. And then there was a time when I I uh, crossed the line from boyhood to manhood, and it's an awkward experience mm. because what happens is the testes drop, the testosterone gets increased in its in its delivery. Uh, legs stretch out. You become gangly. You get hair mm-hmm. growing on parts of your body that you that were never never had hair. Uh, your voice cracks. It's like a transformation uh, period that makes you incredibly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Your ego is forming. Your perceptions are forming. Your sexuality is starting to come to the fore, mm-hmm. and you recognise it because for me it was a Saturday morning when I pulled the curtains back in my bedroom and saw Angela. Uh, walking to the car to go and play netball with a netball uniform on, and I fell in love with her. That did it. That did it. <laughs> that was uniform. the that was the, <laughs> the netball uniform. No, it was the very next, the very day after, almost to the you know within hours of me thinking, oh yuck, Angela, and I just I couldn't stop thinking about Angela. She was just this angel that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. Yeah. And, um, and so that's a, a really awkward stage. Now, I remember in that stage when I found uh, relationships with, with girls were, were potentially something that I'd like to get involved mm-hmm. with. That vulnerability was really, really uh, accentuated because I felt ungainly, I felt mm-hmm. awkward, and my first forays into asking a girl to go out or anything like that were rejected. And I think when a when a young man is at that vulnerable stage and mm-hmm. he suffers rejection, mm. that can set a course for the rest of his life. Mm. And part of our upbringing of our sons should be that they learn how to deal with rejection because not everything is going to go the way you want it to mm. in life. And we tend to sugarcoat everything nowadays. I mean, nowadays everybody gets an award at school, whether you're good or not. That's right. Um, and what does that what does that do for people? I mean, people should have something to strive for as they're growing up because they then that teaches them that you're not always going to be awarded or rewarded for the things you do in life later on. We need to understand that these things have to be earned and worked for, like respect and honour. Those mm, are things that mm. we need to earn and work for in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so um, for me, getting through that stage uh, wasn't very good and it actually set off my pornography addiction, which I think is something you know we'll probably get into when mm-hmm. we talk next time maybe. But um, what I've realised is that the, the things that we set in place through that transfer through puberty have dramatic effects on the choices we make for the rest of our lives. Mm. And my pornography addiction started then, and as a result of that and not handling that very well, I felt like I was a dirty old man. I would grow up to be a dirty old man. So that became my psychology. Mm. Um, so... If we make decisions on things that happen when we're really young and insecure um, that have ramifications on the rest of our lives, we need to be surrounded by people who can help us through that, people who we can go to. Mm -hmm. Um, I I went to an initiation in in North Queensland once, a Thursday Islander initiation. And, um, And 
there was uh, I, my next door neighbour was a, a Thursday Islander family, mm-hmm. and he they were building a pit in the backyard, and I looked over the back fence and I said, "What's going on?" And uh, Joe says to me, "Oh, uh, we're, we're having a hungy. There's a party mm-hmm. tonight." And I said, oh, what's it in aid of? He said, oh, my son, little Joe, is um, becoming a man tonight. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, why don't you come over and have Mm -hmm. a look? So at five o'clock that afternoon, I walked over to his house and they had a little 12 square house, a tiny little two bedroom Mm -hmm. place. And there were six of them crammed in it. And and they'd cleared everything out of the joint family room, Mm -hmm. lounge room area. And uh, there was just in the middle of the room was a, a dining room chair and a coffee table. A side table that had something under a white towel on top of it Mm. and I walked in and stood near the front door because by the time I got there the group had split into two group Mm. of women and a group of men there Mm. were about 60 people in this building and the women women were all at one end Mm. and the men were all at the other end and um, all of a sudden Joe the father started um, talking to Mary the mother Mm. across the room and he said, uh, Mary, let the boy go. And I thought, where is the boy? <laughs> and Mary said, no, no, you can't have him. And when I looked, she had her arms spread back mm-hmm. and hidden behind her, her back, she was a big woman, was young Joseph. Mm-hmm. And Joe called out from the other side of the room, let the boy go, mother. No, no, you can't have him. And then the women started chanting, no, no, you can't <laughs> have him. And then the men started chanting, let the boy go, let the boy go, and the crescendo built. Mm-hmm. And the boy hiding behind his mother's broad shoulders was really terrified. He was crying and mm-hmm. upset. And then the chanting died down, and Joe walked over to his wife, Mary, and he put his hand on her shoulder and he said, Mary, you've done a wonderful job raising our, our son, mm-hmm. and I'm so grateful for everything that you've done. And he looked us straight in the eye and he said, but you know it's time for the men of the family to take over now. You have to let the boy go. And she cried and he cried. And then she turned around and there was Joe, little Joe, Mm. tied to her wrist with a piece of wool. And she was handed a pair of golden scissors and she cut the wool that bound her to her son. And she hugged him and she said, being your mother is the greatest honour I've ever been given. Mm as a woman in our family but it's time for you to go now to be finished off by the men and he hugged her and they cried and then the boy was handed over to the men they took him over to the other side of the room Mm -hmm. and they all surrounded him and hugged him and cheered and all the women hugged Mary Mm -hmm. because she'd been through a painful experience Mm -hmm. then little Joe was taken and sat in the chair that was in the middle of the room Mm -hmm. and the towel was removed to reveal a set of shaving accoutrements (laughs) And all the men of the family took turns at shaving Joe for the first time. Then they went out the back and they had a three-day celebration, just the men. Mm-hmm. They, they had uh, dugong, they had red deer from Thursday Island, they had uh, green sea turtles that they were cooking and, and it was very, very typically Islander feast. Mm-hmm. But over that three days, there were about 20-odd men there with young Joseph and they taught him everything they knew about building houses, about uh, having a relationship with a woman, about raising children, about looking after a car, about getting a job, all that stuff. And over that period, they formed a bonding relationship with him so that if anything ever happened to his father, Mm -hmm. he knew that there were a couple of dozen other men that he could go to. Mm -hmm. Now, I saw that boy change overnight. I saw him become a man overnight. His attitude to everything in the neighbourhood, he was a mischievous kid as 
as he was growing up, but he had responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I envied him. I wanted that kind of transformation. Mm-hmm. Now I'm dealing with men who, uh, who are around my age and younger and some older who haven't got a glimpse of what it takes to be a good man. They haven't got a clue. They're, they're still searching. And, and their search has taken them to dark places. And their search has taken them to opportunities that could have been great if they'd had a little bit more of an understanding of what they ne- how they needed to be. So in, in societies around the world, they've always had these sorts of initiation ceremonies throughout history. Yeah. It's only us in our modern Western society that we don't. And it's not, it seems to me, listening to that, it's not the fact that they have this ceremony that's important is what the ceremony represents about the underlying relationships yeah uh that um you know what it means how your relationships change and how you have to change when Mm. you move from boyhood to manhood and how the relationships you have with others who are there to support you and to journey with you yeah um you know i never had anything like that and you and i are completely the opposite in that regard because i grew up as a goody goody uh, boy in a pretty conservative sort of church environment, yeah. And uh, I, I, in did I ever become a man? I mean, you know, there was never a time when I became a man. In in a sense, I was sheltered from these realities because of all the levels of churchiness and you know whatever I had around me. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's only in the last few years that I've, you know, I've, I've been growing into who I always, always should have been, and I think that, um, you know, that that was my context. But I, but I think that that's true of uh, so many men, you know, in our in our society, men who uh, deep down are still boys, never had those relationships, trapped, never understood what honor is, and responsibility mm-hmm. yeah desperately wanting to have the the self-respect that a man should have but not knowing how to achieve it i really believe ellie that i believe little boys are hardwired to be heroes and the trouble is that we we're not we're not taught how to be or, or we're not even taught the definition of what a hero means uh nowadays sadly a hero is somebody who will Go and kick a winning goal in a grand final, mm-hmm. and then at, at the grand fi- after the grand final celebration, when he gets home, uh, break a beer glass and stick it into his girlfriend's face. <laughs> and, and and it seems we we see a lot of that in the media, which starts to stereotype what a hero does and what a hero is. And I think we've got to stop idolising sporting people. Um, I don't think it's fair for them either. I don't think I don't think they're comfortable with living into a mould of being a hero i think they want to be mm. but it, but the pressures that are put on them in those roles make it incredibly difficult for them to act in responsible ways um back in when i was a kid you know the grand final winning football teams the players in those teams all had day jobs you know uh, norm mm-hmm. proven who won the um the uh the great uh grand final between uh, st george and western suburbs that the um, that the Proven statue, I think the Winfield statue, was based on where there's two men hugging each other, walking off the field. Well, you couldn't identify them because you're of the going mark. back a bit there. Yeah, exactly. But the the uh, those men yeah. were they all had day jobs, and mm. they all had a an esprit de corps between them. Mm. 
you know, Norm Proven actually ran a chain of electrical stores, and and uh, I think the cap Arthur Summons, the captain of the other side, was a, a plumber. Mm-hmm. So life for them was fairly normal, and they they were just rewarded a little bit for playing their sport and reaching the top levels. But we we don't define hero in the way that we should. Uh, to my way of thinking, I see I see a man going to work in a menial job where he'll stick at it for 40 or 50 years doing the same thing all the time because that's maybe the only opportunity that he has. But he does that with a smile on his face because he knows that's how he puts bread on the table for his children. That man is a hero. Someone running out of a burning building with a with a child or another person over their arm is a hero. Not someone who mm. kicks a ball or bats a ball into into the outfield. Mm. That's We're getting it all wrong and we're, we're sending the wrong message out to our kids and to our boys. And we have to look at that. So we have to, we have to define hero as as older men, more mature men, to the younger boys coming forward. How did you define a hero when, you know, uh, before you know, twelve years ago, before you started, oh, well, getting some self awareness and realization. Well, you know, for me, it was I was no good at sport. Oh, me too. The only, the only point that me playing sport has for me is to teach me humility yeah and humility is a good thing we need to teach our kids but i know for me um the the one thing i really enjoyed and excelled at in my younger days was fishing and i i got heavily involved in in fishing on the gold coast i was a a president of the of the sport fishing club and Mm -hmm. i used to work for a fishing tackle wholesaler and and i was always out winning competitions and chasing australian records and and I was that defined me who as a man back then, and that was in my early to late twenties. You know, I'm this great fisherman, mm. so to speak. Then uh, I I built my flying career, and I put on a Qantas uniform, and I'm a Qantas captain. Therefore, I must be a man. Wrong. You must be. No. We can't define no. ourselves. We can't define ourselves by the job we have or the sport we play. I think we have to define ourselves by our spirit. And I believe that honour is a gift that a man gives himself. And it's vitally important that we live into things like honour and integrity because we're, without it, we're just hollow. Without, of it, we, without it, we don't really rate. And the thing is, we don't know that we don't rate because we've never experienced it. We've grown up in families where it seemed to be a foreign word. These words were foreign to us. Can I give an example? Sure. We, we do a lot of um, uh, marriage retreats. Michelle and I, we'll, we'll, we'll have a couple come and visit us for a weekend. And they're normally, we're normally the last resort before their marriage turns to divorce. Mm-hmm. And basically what we do is we try and unpack the whole relationship, throw out the rubbish and put all the other bits back together in a weekend and see what we've got to work with. And it's been largely successful. I think over 300 couples that we've done in the last 12 years, we've had um, three, three couples that we know of that didn't make it three or four and um but there was a a man a man contacted me once and i'll I'll use a fictitious name to protect the the people involved Mm. he contacted me and he said uh look my marriage is in in tatters my wife doesn't understand Uh, she's got a lot of changes she has to make Uh, i want to come to your place so you can tell her what she needs to do to fix our marriage and and immediately i knew where the problem was (laughs) you know it was it was all about her he wasn't accepting any responsibility Anyway, so they travelled a long distance to be with us for the weekend. And um, when they came into our home, they, they stayed in a, in a guest accommodation on the property and, and we invited them in for a meal on Friday night and Michelle had prepared a beautiful roast. And we always use the Friday night meal with our couples to explore where the issues are. 
And as soon as they walked in, uh, Michelle welcomed them and she said to them, so tell me, how many kids have you got? And he answered for her straight away, as he did for most of the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, um, I've got one daughter and two disappointments. Oh. And I looked at her and her body language just shriveled up. She just mm. dropped her shoulders and looked down at the ground because she was talking about her two sons who she dearly loves. Mm. And this guy was fairly verbose about about how bad his, his boys were and, and uh, how, how it was very hard to be their father and so on. Mm. Anyhow, we went through this process and I think for for six hours on the Friday night, we listened to them fight over the issues and we started to draw a picture of where they're at. Mm-hmm. The next day, we on the Saturday, we weren't getting anywhere and by about 11 o'clock on Saturday night, in frustration, I just looked at him out of the blue. I don't know where the... Well, I do know now where the question came from, but it wasn't from me. And I said to him, what's the worst thing you've ever done to your wife? And... He looked at me and grinned. He had this evil grin on his face and he looked at her and he said, oh, I suppose I can say it. Uh, yeah, it's no big deal, really. And with a smile on his face, he said something that was so grotesque, I could not repeat it in this conversation. But it enraged everyone in the room and she was horrified. She said, you did what? And he just looked and he said, well, you asked me to be honest. And I was in my rage. I just looked at him, and I—he—he I, he was a fairly bulky man. He had a his in his mid fifties. He had a beard, mm. and uh, he was a frightening sort of a guy, very intimidating, passive aggressive. Mm. And I looked at him, and I said, uh, "You know what? You're just a dog." I said, "No, I take that back. I've got two beautiful border collies, and I love my dogs. You're just—you're lower than a snake's belly in a gutter." And he looked at me and he started to prickle up and he stood out of his chair and he was motioning to come towards me. And he said, what did you say to me? I said, just sit down and be quiet. I want to tell you something. And if if you're still angry with me when I've finished, then you can get up and come over and give me a bunch of fives. And he sat in his chair. You don't muck around. And I said to him, you're a dog. And here's the thing. You know you're a dog. And you don't like it. Hmm. And he just shrank back in the chair and he looked at me in his mouth open. I said, you don't like being who you portray yourself to be because it's not innate in you. It's not who you are. It's not how you were designed. Mm. And I said, let me tell you what your funeral would look like if you died tonight and your funeral was on Friday. It'd be a small chapel because it wouldn't need to be big. Uh, Your wife would be surrounded by half a dozen of her friends dressed in black, hugging her, saying, don't worry, you're free now, he's gone. There'd be half a dozen of your friends from the warehouse you work in in their yellow reflective shirts sitting there because it's a lunch hour and they used to play cards with you. And your sons would be in the hotel getting drunk celebrating that you're no longer around to infect their lives. And he just looked at me, gobsmacked. But I said, if you get it right this weekend and in three years' time you died, the church will be filled with people who admired you your wife would be grieving that she, that she lost the man she fought for years to get, finally got him and then he died. And your sons would stand in suits giving glowing eulogies about the man who transformed his life from one of darkness to one of brilliance. And he just looked at me. And I leaned over to him and I said, which funeral do you want? He said, I want the second one. And I said to him, what are you going to do to get it? Ellie, we need to live our lives, I believe, for a good funeral. 
I think I'm fairly typical of most men, probably like you were, that when we're confused and we can't cope and we're not happy liking the person that we are or the person we pretend to be. Yep. I mean, I'm not a dog. I probably didn't do the thing that that man did, um, almost certainly. But, you know, what men do is we just throw ourselves into our work and work harder thinking that that's, you know, we're defined by our profession or our trade or whatever it is. And and somehow it's it's like a drug. We medicate yeah. ourselves through our work um, because perhaps if we work more hours, uh, then uh, we'll be better. Men yeah. Yeah. Uh, will achieve more. Yeah. We'll finally get that breakthrough. But, you know, on that day of our funeral, no one's going to be saying he worked really hard. And we all appreciated that. There's so much in this that's really important to raise. Um, firstly, um, when, when I had that conversation with that man, the next step for me was to say, so where does your pain come from? And we went on a journey through his past and we finally got to the root of his pain and lo and behold, it was his father. Funny that. Funny about that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said to him, Okay, so you're really angry at your dad. And he said, yep, I can't stand him. I hate him. The thought of him makes me sick. And I said to him, how is that supporting you now? And he said, I haven't even thought about it. I said, well, it's obvious it's affecting everything you you do. Your dad is still holding the remote control of your life and he's dead, isn't he? And he said, yes, he's been dead for years. I said, but let's imagine, let's put you in your dad's life. So then we went on a... On a, on a journey of discovery back through his father's life. Mm. And what we discovered was his father was a man that everyone loved, who was the life of the party and, and everyone enjoyed being around. And then he went off to the Korean War. And after the Korean War, he came back and he was shattered. Mm-hmm. And the one reason that this fellow hated his dad for was the fact that his father would belt him with a strap every, every afternoon when he came home from school and sometimes even knock him unconscious. Wow. And when he said, why did you do that? He said, because I felt like it. And then I said to this guy, well, let's look at what the Korean War was like for those guys. You know, it was freezing conditions. They were fighting a massive Chinese army. A lot of them were taken prisoner. They suffered awesome atrocities. Your dad went through all of that. How do you think your life would have turned out if you'd lived in your dad's shoes? And he looked at me and he was gobsmacked. And he said, I probably would have made a bigger mess of it than he did. Mm. And I said, so can you see the fruitlessness of hating your father to the extent that it's destroying your relationships in your own life now, even with your own sons? And he got it. He really, really got it. And they went to bed then. It was midnight. And the next morning, now bear in mind, this man had had a beard all of his adult life. And the next morning they turned up for breakfast. Mm -hmm. They were holding hands. (laughs) And he had, was clean shaven. Mm. And Michelle said, what's going on with you two? And she was smiling and beaming and she said, we've had a wonderful morning. And I said, what's happened to your beard? She said, well, I woke up this morning and he was kneeling beside me at the bed. And I looked and I noticed he was clean shaven. And I said to him, I've never seen you clean shaven in 30 odd years of marriage. What have you done? Mm. He said, I got up at 1.30 and I shaved off my beard. She said, why did you do that? He said, I don't want you ever to wake up and see that face ever again. Oh. And that 
I don't know where they're at at the moment. We hear from friends of theirs that they've been doing well. We've seen on Facebook and social media that they're reunited as a family and having holidays in Bali and things like that. His sons, I believe, literally divorced him in court because Mm -hmm. they didn't want to carry his last name, and I believe that's been reversed. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a man on a journey. But you haven't been a perfect father. No. You know, and I'm still not a perfect father. I think... Correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, for a long time, your you know your girls didn't talk to you either. No, um, and I. But what I'm saying, they were distant. They were distant. Yeah. Yeah, because of choices I was making. That's but you've, right. you've got but, to remember that I, I, um, as a result of my uh, upbringing. Yeah. And I'm not blaming that for anything. I think we've got to look for reasons why our behaviours are set in place and not turn them into excuses. No, if I don't want to do that. No. So no. I look back. I look back, and and the reasons. My, my pornography addiction led to led to a life of of uh, total dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. I had this aching hole in my soul that could only be filled with a God-shaped love. Mm-hmm. And I never got that. I mm-hmm. never ever felt loved. I never felt worthy. And as a result, I did everything I could to mask the pain of being loved. And that's the cause of mm-hmm. addiction. Addiction is founded in the, in the absolute truth of we are designed to love and be loved. And mm. when we feel rejection or a lack of love in our lives, when that circle of love is broken, that's when we mask that pain by turning to drugs and alcohol, to pornography, mm-hmm. to sex, to pride, to religious fervor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we become addicted to a Bible and we start looking for twisted answers to construct a picture of God. That's an That addiction. was me, brother. <laughs> We're singing the same song, maybe. But at the end of the day, what we have is... A falsehood built on the fact that we don't feel loved. Mm-hmm. Now, out of that, I was unable to meet most of the emotional needs of my family mm-hmm. because I didn't feel worthy of them myself. And I became distant. I became focused. You know, mm-hmm. I had to be the top fisherman on the Gold Coast when the kids were born. Uh, while my wife was playing, building sandcastles on the beach with my, my infant mm-hmm. daughter, I was out 15 miles off the coast in my runabout catching marlin and, and Spanish mackerel and things like that. You know, to make big note myself and make myself feel good. Yeah, you should take me out fishing more, Graham. We should. We've only ever done it once. Mm. And, and I, I'm Miserable. scared that you're going to outshine me in the boat. That's why. Oh, I no, we'll talk about that one another time. Um, but but the, what we, what yeah. we need to realise in this country is the average Australian father only spends 37 seconds a day in one-on-one communication with each of his children. Yeah, but, but the point I was getting at, Graham, is that you... Weren't a perfect father. No, that's right. I straight off. I wasn't a perfect father. You know, part of your journey has been my journey in that regard too, except I threw myself into being the most brilliant scholar and academic and and best businessman and all that sort of stuff. Have you met the perfect father, by the way? No. And neither of us neither of us are the perfect father still. Yeah. But you're talking about having a good funeral. What you know, what is it that what is it that turns that man that we were around? Oh, that's a good question. Because that bloke you were talking to, he wasn't headed to a good funeral. Well, I tell you what turned me around. He turned around. I think what turned him around was we, you can't begin to climb out of the hole until you hit the bottom because you've got nowhere to put your feet. There's no steps up. You've got to get to the bottom first, collect your thoughts and climb out. Mm. And I think we have to reach the bottom. And the bottom for me was rapidly approaching the date when I was going to exit this world at my own hand. I believe inside every man there are two men that live, one that's good and one that's bad, and one of them needs to drown, not both of them. And suicide is a bridge too far, really. And I was going a bridge too far. Mm. And so I'm hoping that I drowned the bad one. I don't think I actually drowned him. 
I don't mm. think he's gone yet. Mm. He lives there still. But I like the light so much that I want to stay in that as much as possible. Even though I stray into the darkness, mm-hmm. um, it terrifies me being there and I want to get back into the light. And so I have this, I think what's turned my relationships around is that people are now starting to see this change in my life over the last 12 years as something that's powerful, profoundly good, and working in my favour because they're seeing my warped character start to change. Mm. And I believe that any man is capable of turning that stuff around mm. by stepping out of denial. We have to accept that the things that we do that are harmful have come from a seed of great pain in our lives. Mm. We have to go back to that place where the pain originated, look at it for what it is, and realise that the basic intrinsic design for who we mm. are is that we be honourable, mm-hmm. that we have integrity, mm-hmm that we be strong in every sense of our lives, that we have an open spirit that embraces um, the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. whatever form you want to give that, Mm -hmm. and that that becomes the person that behaves in us. And I think a good man is is a man who when evil knocks on the door, it's his Holy Spirit, his Jesus who answers the door and not him. And I think when people start to see that happening mm. in our lives, they start to trust that maybe our faith is based on something that's tangibly good mm. and not scary and not frightening. And change can be good. Why is it Why is it that we seem to be all so dense? I mean, why does it take reaching the bottom before, you know, this transformation can start? I mean, in my own life. You know, uh, every time I think I've reached the bottom, uh, I go. De- I, it seems I've got to go deeper still, and um, and I, you know, I don't regret it because you know the deeper that the seed is planted, the stronger that that the tree, even the tree of life, you might call it, seems to grow within me. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, first it was my sense of betrayal by my church, and then by my family um, and my family discovering my own porn addiction and then uh, you know my father's suicide and all the issues that arose within me and even within my family uh, uh, around that you know why is it Graham that men seem to be so dense and I'm not saying women don't have their own issues they're probably similar in some ways but why is it why uh, why don't we talk about these things? Why don't we face them? Why, you know, why is it so hard? We hear about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and they were naked until the time that someone said to them, you're naked. Mm-hmm. And they started putting their armour on. What did they put on? They, well, the only thing they had was a fig leaf and they made garments out of fig leaves and to try and hide their nakedness. All of a sudden, and the armor's been building up ever since then, I believe. I believe we're carrying this armor that's based on fear. We're scared of being attacked. We're scared of being attacked by the people we're meant to love and who meant to love us. We're scared of being attacked by God sure. in whatever form. And, and, and I'm, I'm talking from somebody who was an atheist who would only ever talk about God when I wanted to blame somebody for something bad that happened. Oh, I knew all about God, but <clears throat> I, I had a twisted view of God. Yeah. A lot of Christians do. 
I think if you were to jump overboard from a ship wearing the armour that we put on, you'd sink to the bottom fairly quickly, <laughs> wouldn't you? Yeah, sure. And I, I, th- I think having a relationship, an open relationship with honest men of integrity, we, I want to surround myself with people who are authentic. I want people who have my permission to call me on my stuff. I've given you permission to do that to me and, and you've given me permission to do that to you and that's why our friendship is so strong and enduring, even though we're an odd couple. We are. But that, that's built on, on trust, integrity and honesty. You know that I'm not perfect and you know that I'm growing and I know that you're not perfect and I know that you're growing. But you know what? In battle, if you and I were in a trench together, you'd be watching my back and I'd be watching yours. And that's what we're meant to do, mm. Ellie. Mm. It's as simple as that. But we run around hiding from each other. Mm. When I stand up in front of a group of men and say, my name's Graham, I'm a grateful believer in Jesus and I struggle with a pornography addiction, I see people look at each other as if to say, oh, this guy's going to touch on something I don't want to talk about because I'm trying to keep this hidden. Don't mm. open me up. Mm. And then later on, when I also talk about the times I've fallen, mm-hmm since I started dealing with my recovery from pornography because it comes with falls. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to be open about my past, I have to be open about my present. And that means having occasionally to say, I have stumbled again. Then I see a different look on their faces. They, They drop their shoulders and they let out a big sigh. And it's like, oh, thank God. I thought I was the only one who fell backwards. And there's a release that happens. Mm. and what what am I doing I really believe that I should wear my heart on my sleeve but not stick my arm in the toilet Mm. if I'm honest about who I am then nobody can hurt me what can they do to me Mm. you know sure someone could hit me with a truck or someone could shoot me or Mm. someone could sack me or whatever but at the end of the day my honour and integrity will hold me through and when I've got no skeletons in the closet, nobody can come at me from behind. Someone may listen to this and say, I remember you when you uh. did this that time and when you did that at that time. And if they could call up a radio station and say, oh, that guy you just had on, you know, he's just, uh, you know, he's, uh. he's full of it because I remember his behaviour being really bad. Yeah. And the presenter of that radio station, or me if it was a talkback program that I've done a couple of, be able to say, yeah, I know, but I've already admitted that. Uh. Haven't you heard my testimony? Uh. Haven't you heard my true story? Mm-hmm. it's what my higher power thinks about me that's more important. And that's mm-hmm. God. That's Jesus. What he thinks about me is more important than what you think about me. Mm-hmm. I don't care what you think about me. I want to get on with you. But it doesn't matter to me at the end of the day. It's what God thinks of me because he's the one I'm ultra, ultimately in deepest relationship Imagine with. Imagine if you didn't have that. Well, if that's, that's what happens. And that's what I didn't have that brought me to the point where I didn't want to live anymore. I had a God-shaped hole in my soul that I tried to fill with pornography, with food, with spending on toys. You know, a a brand new car would make me feel good for a week. You know, a a packet of iced donuts would make me feel good for 10 minutes. You know, watching porn for eight hours a day would make me feel good for 10 seconds and then leave me with a gaping hole in my soul again. So you mentioned, you know, a good funeral. And you've also mentioned honour a few times. And for me, Mm -hmm. honour is this 
old-fashioned concept that knights in shining armour have from fairy tales yep. that they talk about, yep. but you never hear about it today. It's not just me, but a lot of blokes out there would struggle with the issue of, so what is, what's honour, you know, what's it got to do with my life? I'm really glad you asked that question because the, the best definition I've heard of honour was out of a movie, and the movie was uh, Liam Neeson played Rob Roy McGregor in the movie Rob Roy. Well, that's a classic. It's a classic movie. Mm-hmm. And his sons asked him that same question that you asked me. Uh, what is honour? And he says, oh, honour is a gift that a man gives himself. Mm. He said, um, all men with honour are kings, but not all kings have honour. And he said, and women are the heart of honour and we should nurture and protect it in them. And they're, they're definitions that stand up to what the value of the knight really is. Um, chivalry is all about the chivalry I think comes from the French word of uh, honour and support to mean honour and support Um, and the way of the knight is another definition of it and that is Another another movie was the Kingdom of Heaven, and, uh, and yep. the night uh, the night Balian was in, mm. in the Crusades in uh, in Jerusalem. So Balian had decided that he lost his family and his business in France, and he followed a duke to the Crusades because he thought that's where his future lay to go and work for God. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he decided to go to Golgotha, mm. and he spent the night sitting on the hill at Golgotha, and his mentor night. Mm. Had no idea where he was, and the next morning he came down and walked into the to the part of the the, the building where they were all residing. Now Golgotha is the the hill where Jesus is meant to have been crucified. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, where where Christ was crucified, and um, his mentor said to him, um, "Balian, where have you been?" He said, "I've been up on the hill where Christ was crucified." He said, "I've been trying to find my religion," <laughs> and. The old knight looked at him with a wry smile and he said, I seem to have lost my religion. And he laughed, the old mentor. And he walked up to him and he said, um, he said, in the name of religion, he said, I put no stock in religion. He said, in the name of religion, I've seen the lunacy of men of every denomination be called the will of God. What God requires is here pointing to his forehead and here pointing to his heart. And whether you decide to be good or not good, it's that simple. And to me, that defines honour. Honour is the gift a man gives himself by saying, I'm choosing a path that's going to give me a better outcome. I want to walk a path towards good because I know I'm not damaging my soul and I'm not damaging my body and I'm Mm. not damaging my relationships. And if I do damage relationships because I'm choosing a pathway Mm. towards good, Mm. then I have to evaluate those relationships because maybe they're not as authentic as they need to be. Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of the day, Everything about the Bible, everything about honour and manhood and chivalry is all about choosing a pathway between good and evil. Mm -hmm. The great yin and yang, if you like, the black and the white. Mm -hmm. When we choose the white, we serve our honour, we serve our integrity, and we can stand straight. And the reason we can stand straight is we've had the burden of guilt taken off us. Now, I often say to men, people often pray to remove pain and guilt from their lives. But imagine if God took away your sense of physical pain mm. um, and you hit your thumb with a with a hammer, putting a nail in, and you didn't feel it, and you kept hitting it and hitting it and hitting it. What would happen to your thumb? It would be pretty messed up. Mm. So thank God for pain because that tells us that we're damaging our body. Mm. And guilt and shame tell us that we're damaging our soul. 
So whenever we feel guilty or shameful, it's a call to arms. What are we doing to our soul? Because I don't believe there's any such thing as a, as a hero who hasn't got a good soul. If you haven't got a good soul, you can't be a hero. Because everything is driven from within, that, that place within you. But that means having the courage to look at yourself and choose the good, even though that's a, a most difficult decision. No, I haven't, worked, I haven't worked that out yet. No. I haven't worked that out yet. I astound myself at how often I choose the less than good path, mm. even now. And we're talking about this stuff. You know, I, I live and breathe this stuff. But I know that it's a journey. I know that I'm loved by a father who cherishes every mistake I make because he knows it's one closer to the last one that I make before, mm. I, before I'm there. See, I'm... I'm a follower of Jesus, so mm. I believe that um, because of Jesus, I have eternal life, mm-hmm. which means I'm going to live forever, yep. which means in the context of my lifespan, I'm just a little baby just learning to walk. And I imagine, uh, you know, my heavenly father, uh, when he sees me stumble, mm-hmm. you've been talking about stumbling, mm-hmm. when he sees me stumble, you know, he doesn't grab a big stick and start to beat me, or, you know, <laughs> smash it on my shoulders and my head. You stupid, clumsy idiot. When are you going to learn to walk, you know? You know, you know, you're meant to walk upright and not fall over. Instead, what he does is, and I've just realised this recently, is he, he rushes over to where I am because, you know, he's always with me to look after me. Mm-hmm. And he sort of throws his arms around me, brushes the dirt off me, you know, holds me against his body as he stands me on my two feet and he says, it's fine, get back to it. Mm. You're one step closer to learning to walk. Yeah. Maybe, Graham, I liked, you know, just a little earlier in, you, you mentioned about what a good funeral looks like. Mm-hmm. So I just want to visualise uh, that good funeral that you were talking about. Can you just run through it again? I'm going to imagine myself there. <clears throat> well, it's, it's a church packed with people who loved you, who still love you. And they love you for good reason. And you know that they're there because they love you for good reason. Mm-hmm. You know in your heart you deserve it. And because you've lived a life, you've worn your heart on your sleeve, you've made mistakes, you've lived your life mm-hmm. outwardly, not inwardly, so that people can grow with you. You've chosen authentic people in your life. Mm-hmm. You don't... You're not, you, had, you don't have time for shallow relationships and friendships. And your family is growing as a result of your successes and failures um, to elevate you to a position where your life really meant something to them. Mm-hmm. I don't like talking about leaving a big footprint because I think the most successful lives are the ones that don't leave any footprints, to be honest with you. But I think there needs to be a memory that people can turn to where they can say, I wonder what Ellie or Graham would have done if they were confronted with this situation. Mm. That defines the honour that provides you with the funeral that I would classify as a good funeral. Well, I want to thank you, Graham, because in my life, you're someone who has helped me on my journey so that my funeral will be something like that. Well, I don't want you to think that that hasn't been done without mutual benefit, Ellie, because mm. you're an integral part of my growth, and I thank you for it. And I thank you for being vulnerable with me, as you have for 12 years. Yeah, I love you like a brother. Same here, mate. Let's talk again real soon. Sure. 
Mates in Courage. Brought to you by Good News Unlimited. To sign up for Graham and Ellie's daily spiritual message emails about recovering from addictions, hurts and hang-ups, visit goodnewsunlimited.com. To book Graham and Ellie for talks, get in touch at the same website. And if you're troubled by anything you've heard, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or an equivalent service in your own country. Thanks for listening. Mates in Courage. Catch you in the next episode.